Okay, today's reading is the final chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And so today we come to the end of it, and with that we also finish our study through what theologians call the synoptic gospels. I know I've mentioned that before. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, they're called synoptic, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, synoptic, because uh, there are so many similarities between them. Uh, they tell so many of the same stories, and they follow uh, so much of the same timeline and John's gospel that we will begin uh, tomorrow will have a much different feel to it than the other gospels uh, that we've studied so far. With that said, let's consider some of the lessons of this final chapter in Luke's gospel. Um, and uh, the focal point of this chapter is certainly Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his resurrection appearances. I noticed an interesting emphasis peppered throughout this chapter that's perhaps worthy of our consideration. Watch the wording of the following verses. In verses 6 and 7, the angels say to the women at the empty tomb, uh, quote, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third uh, day but crucified, and on the third day, rise. And then, that was verses 6 and 7. And then later, as Jesus was walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus, he tells them in verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Okay, then likewise, Jesus, in verse 44, said to his own disciples in his resurrection appearance to them, he said, quote, verse 44, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So over and over again, we have this language of necessity attached to Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus himself asking, was it not necessary? And it should make us pause a minute and say, why? Why was it necessary for Jesus, as verse 26 puts it, to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And one might answer, well, because the scriptures prophesied it, and indeed they did. Twice Jesus emphasizes that his death and resurrection is in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, verses 27 and 44. But that doesn't really answer the question fully, because you could further ask why those prophecies were given in the first place. Sure, Jesus must fulfill those prophecies by his death and resurrection so that God, who gave the prophecies, is upheld as truthful in his word. But was God compelled to promise salvation and prophesy the coming of a Savior? Why did God give prophecies and a promise to begin with? Was it not, why was it necessary, as they keep putting it? And it's helpful to remember a distinction here. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. But that doesn't mean he is therefore obligated to save those who have willfully rejected him. So there's not a compulsion within him uh, to save. Furthermore, because we have all willfully sinned against and rejected him, let's see that in Romans 1, there's certainly nothing within us to compel him to save us. So where does the necessity come from? If God, out of sheer grace and mercy, decided not, uh, or did not decide, and promise to save. There would be 
no salvation and no necessity to save. But since God, out of sheer grace and mercy, uh, did decide and promise to save, he placed an obligation and necessity upon himself to save and promised it centuries in advance through the prophets. And because we, through our uh, willful rebellion against him, had earned a just condemnation, it was necessary in order to fulfill his gracious promise for Jesus to suffer these things, to pay our sin debt, and then enter into his glory that we might have eternal life. So whenever you think about these things, and I hope it's often, don't let yourself forget that any and all necessity and obligation involved in God's provision of salvation is rooted in his gracious decision to save, a decision he was not obligated to make. And when you think about it in that way, it really helps you understand that grace really is grace. Let's think secondly about seeing and not seeing. Seeing and not seeing. Uh, So that's another theme woven in this chapter that's worth noting. As you read the chapter, did you notice the repeated theme that um, they didn't remember and then they did remember? Like for example, six and that verses six and eight. Uh, Or uh, they didn't recognize him and then they did recognize him. Verses 16 and 31. They didn't believe, then they did believe. Verses 11, 41, and 45, etc. It's, it's sort of unmistakable. Furthermore, it's not simply uh, happenstance, but it appears to be the deliberate working of God. The two men on the road to Emmaus were initially kept from recognizing Jesus in verse 16. By whom? The Lord. Later, then, it says in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they did recognize him. Who opened them? The Lord. Likewise, when the women came and told the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, Initially, verse 11, these words seem like an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. That is, until Jesus, verse 45, opened their minds to understand, and they believed. And this reminds us of our own salvation, remembering that uh, before Christ, it says in Ephesians 2, 1, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we live. D-E-A-D, dead. That is, until, verse 5 of Ephesians 2, God made us alive together with Christ. So seen in this way, it adds a deeper meaning and texture to the words of Ephesians 2.8. By grace, you have been saved. It adds a, a deeper meaning and texture to, to songs about God's grace, amazing grace. Was lost, now found. Was blind, now see. Was dead, now alive. No wonder the angels around the throne as we speak uh, are declaring that salvation belongs to our God. Re- Revelation 7.10. Not only are we saved through faith, but the very faith we exercise is a gift from his gracious hand. We didn't find ourselves. He found us. We see because he opened our eyes. We're alive because he gave us life. Amazing grace. The sound really is sweet. Finally, Jesus is at the center of it all. Luke's gospel ends kind of the way it began, emphasizing that Jesus is the center and the focus of all the Old Testament scripture leading up to his coming. Do you, do you recall the, the, the richness of the first few chapters of this gospel? Do you recall how in chapter 1 we saw Luke emphasizing that Jesus came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant that God made with Abraham? And then remember how in chapter 2 we saw Luke emphasizing that Jesus also came as the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David and as the fulfillment of the law covenant he made with Moses. 
You remember how at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, how Luke emphasized how Jesus came to obey the law of God perfectly in contrast to how both Adam and Israel of the Old Testament disobeyed. Over and over again, Luke emphasized how Jesus was coming to fulfill all the Old Testament. And he ends his gospel in the same way. In verse 27, Jesus emphasizes to the two men on the road to Emmaus that, quote, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in fact, all the scriptures uh, were concerning himself. And later, to his own disciples, he declared that, verse 44, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were written about me. Jesus is at the center of the Bible. From beginning to end, the Bible is telling one grand story. It's not 66 books telling 66 different stories. It's one story, the story of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that is the Gospel of Luke.